Why did you stay with him five years? I mean, he wasn't even close to acting right. He wasn't even trying to do it on a download. He was bringing his side pieces to the crib. I didn't know that. I, I did not know that those were his side pieces. I legit. But once you found out, you broke his car window and then stayed. Because that's all I know. I don't know nobody else. I can have a disease for five years, but I still want to get rid of it. I didn't think that I did a good job simply because I said what I said. I decided whether or not I did a good job if I was able to engage in a meaningful conversation with the person in front of me. And in order to do that, I only had a few minutes, is to really understand somebody's emotional state. Then I became a better judge and not before. You gotta know where you as an individual what you are bringing to the marital table. Every marriage is as unique as the two people in it. When I went on to the bench, I saw a whole different kind of household chaos. 99% of the things that you worry about do not come to pass. And so you've just wasted all of your time. You've wasted all the joy and, you know, stop and enjoy the moment and don't worry about the next one because you're going to fool around and lose this one. Welcome back everyone to Diary of an Empath. I'm so excited and humbled for my next guest to come on. I've been watching her for a long time and she is just a wealth of knowledge, especially with relationships and marriages. Her name is Judge Lynn Toller. She is a lawyer, a judge, a television presenter, and she's best known for her role as the former arbitrator over the longest running courtroom television series, Divorce Court. From her 14 seasons with Divorce Court from 2006 to 2020, she is the longest reigning arbitrator over the series. She's also the host of the show Commit and Quit and a current co-hosting role as the marriage mentor over the series Marriage Bootcamp. And last but not least, she's an amazing author. Her most recent books, My Mother's Rules and Dear Sonali. Judge Lynn, I hope I gave you the, the presenting red carpet as you deserve. It was beautiful. I was excited to meet me. <laughs> you did a great job. You are so deserving of it. I wanted to make sure that I got it right. And I could probably add so much more because you have done so much. I was even just reading a little bit about your story and your background. And I was just, I'm so wowed by you and just all the things that you've done. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So I kind of want to start out in your book, My Mother's Rules, you talk about the lessons that you learned with your mother and how it helped you to deal with your father's erratic behavior. You said that this helped you to deal with emotional people as a judge. So I kind of want to start there. Tell me about that and why did that impact you? Well, my mother was an extraordinary emotional manager and what she did for me was allow me to understand not only my emotionality, but other people's emotionality and more than logic, more than facts, more than history. That determines what people do, think and say. And I took what she taught me about understanding people and getting myself understood to the bench. And then I used it with some success at reaching people. And then when I took it on television, I could reach even more people. And I saw that my mother's understanding of people's emotional lives that she taught me to understand allowed me to be more effective and persuasive. So I remember there was one particular post that you made a while back 
that you mentioned that your mother was in the stands when you were sentencing a young man. And she said something to you about the way that you sentenced him. And you and she said something along the lines of, what you did changes nothing. And you had said that from that point forward, it changed the way that you sentence people. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why that changed the way that you sentence people from that point Absolutely. forward? Absolutely. I was sentencing a guy on a domestic violence charge, and I, I gave him some time, and then... And I was very sincere about, you disrespected the woman that you stood before God to say that you were going to love and cherish. And I gave him the whole nine yards just, and you know, how dare you, this and that and the other. And my mother came back and she says, let me tell you what you did wrong. She says, you didn't change anything. You didn't help that woman. All she's thinking about, all he's thinking about as he's getting driven off to jail is that B he hit and that other B that put him in jail. He never, you never made him look at his behavior and ask himself, how did what I do get me here? And that changed everything because after that day, I didn't think that I did a good job simply because I said what I said. I decided whether or not I did a good job if I was able to engage in a meaningful conversation with the person in front of me. And in order to do that, I only had a few minutes, is to really understand somebody's emotional state and then have a conversation on that basis. And the reason I know it had value is once I started doing that, not often, but every once in a while I would get a letter from prison, because you know it's prison because it's written in pencil, saying, I don't want you to think I'm a bad person, or I wanted you to know that. That meant he heard me and that he's spending some time in jail because he's got plenty of time to think about it. And then I became a better judge and not before. It's that connection with people. And so, you know, what's interesting is I totally understand what you mean. Now, I wasn't a judge by no means, but I worked in the federal prison system. And I think when you work around offenders, you and you hear their stories, you do start to see that these are actual people. And some of these men and women, I started to realize personally, I'm like, some they've ne- they never had a chance from the beginning. Some of these people never, I mean, depending on their socioeconomic background, depending on the environment that they lived in, their education, their access to healthcare, some of them really never had a chance. It brought out the human in everybody. And when I started to empathize with these men that I worked with because I was a mental health clinician in the prison system, it made me start to appreciate and better be able to help them. And when they saw that I actually saw them as humans, not as just numbers in the system, that's when they started to actually listen and and be like, okay, she actually sees me, she understands me, I'll listen a little bit harder. So I totally agree with that. For you, your upbringing, how did you end up getting involved in law, and what was your interest in it? I'm very curious to hear this story. I had none. I went to college with the intent of becoming a physician. I wanted to be an really? anesthesiologist because I wasn't real interested in talking to people. I'm, I'm, I'm very, oddly enough, reclusive, shy, and retiring. So I went to college, got to college, and I goofed around. Never went to class. And you can't get into medical school if you don't go to class. But you can get into law school if you get do well on the LSAT. And I called Daddy and I said, I don't think I'm going to medical school. And he says, well, I don't care what you do, but if you don't go to grad school, you are on your own. You're going to have to get a job. And I was like, good Lord, 
I don't want to do that. So I said, let me go to law school. So I took the LSAT. I got into UPenn and I did it just because I didn't want to work. There's no grand story there. I was just lazy. Well, and it led you to where, listen, when I was in grad school, I'm not going to lie. I don't think I read one book. I don't think, I, I mean, in class, we did what we had to do. I took every test last minute the night before. Literally, we would be up the night before writing papers. But you know what? I, I got great grades. I learned everything in my internships. And then when I started to connect with people, it all that's kicked when in. everything started. Everything kicked in. So I feel like for you, you just kind of got aligned with your natural path. And then things took off. And I find that a lot when you start to get aligned with what you're supposed to do and find your purpose and find your passion. And I think for you, that's helping people. Would you agree with that? I think so. And I think it's understanding people and being non-judgmental and really enjoying people. I mean, I enjoy people from a distance. <laughs> you know, it's just like everybody's got a life and everybody has their struggles and everybody has problems. And if you meet people where they live, it's usually a decent place, but you just have That's to be right. willing to read them where they live. I love that. So how did you get involved in television? So you, you're, you're now thrown into law unexpectedly. How did this transition from law to now going on television and being where you're at now, how did this unfold? This is another chapter of <laughs> being an accidental overachiever who has failed up ass backward all her life. I was on the bench. <laughs> Got off the bench, this was a long time ago in the 90s, and I had this little pink while you were out slip that said, Fox Television called. That was a Monday. I sent them a tape on Tuesday. They got it on Wednesday. I was in L.A. on Friday. Wow. Boom. And it just went from there. Boom. And so you started on Divorce Court. You had this long-reigning series with them, and obviously you've been such a monumental person. When we think about court tv we think you and one other person judge, <laughs> judge judy, judy those are right? the two people that come to mind and what a powerhouse you know but the thing is is when i listen to you and why i was so excited to do this podcast is what you say matters like when you speak to people i pay attention i listen it moves me and i think when you have emotions with your words, that's when it really resonates with people. And I think that's why you really paved the way and made a big difference, not just being somebody on television, but making a difference in lives. Like I see the emotion in people. So I actually want to dive a little bit into some of your thoughts and opinions on like relationships and marriages, sure. because you give such sound advice. Sure. So in your opinion, what does it take to have a healthy marriage? Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. It takes a number of things to have a healthy marriage. Number one, a dedicated to the proposition of getting it done. I think a lot of younger people today, they're, you, they're so attached to their social media that it matters how their relationship reflects to the world. Don't nobody yes. know what's going on in my house, but me and my man, we have had years where he was, you know, I'm flipping him a bird when he walks out the room, sticking my tongue <laughs> out at him, all of that kind of stuff. But 
we were dedicated to the proposition of being together. So even when we didn't like each other, we didn't reach out and touch somebody else. That's number one, dedicated Mm -hmm. to the proposition of it. Number two, you got to know where you're weak. You got to know where you as an individual, what you are bringing to the marital table. We went to a marriage counselor before we got married and took a battery of tests and was able to determine, okay, these are going to be the issues that the two of you were going to run into because every marriage is as unique as the two people in it. So you've got to That's make right. sure. And then that also allows you to think, my partner isn't wrong. My partner just does it differently because I know that mm-hmm. now. And so as opposed to, because everybody has a full script based on where they were. I had a full script on how a house used to run, and so did my husband. And nobody's two scripts run the same. So we were clear about the necessity to trash those other scripts and write our own. And I guess the other thing I would be I would say would be honesty and fight to talk all the time. You can never talk about it enough. Whatever it is, talk about it. Get down and sit down and make a point of checking in regularly because the thing can run off the rails so slowly that you won't know until you're already in the ditch. So it constant communication allows everybody to check in to make sure we're still traveling down the middle of that road. That's right, yeah. And I think divorce is so high in this country and for a number of reasons. I think you, you one of the reasons you hit the nail on the head, social media. Social media, I feel Killing like- Killing love. It's like- it's killing love and it's killing dating. I'm a single woman, but I am a divorced woman. And coming from a military background, military marriages are even very more difficult. Very hard. Very hard. And so I came out of that after six years and I've been single for quite a long time. And let me tell you something, the dating game, the dating pool, I feel like with the quality it's getting smaller and smaller. And the older I get, it's just getting tinier and tinier. So then I feel like social media is a big part of that problem. We have easy access. Mm-hmm. Everything is swipe left, swipe right. I can go slide into her DMs, slide into his DMs. You've got OnlyFans everywhere. You, you know, and no judgment against whoever's going to do, do what yeah, you're going to no, do. You do what you're going to do, but it's not you helping your love life. That's right. And it's just easy access to everything. So I feel like it is so much more difficult to be in a committed relationship. I think it's possible because I want it, but I think it's getting harder. Yeah, I mean, you used to have to actually leave the house to cheat, but you don't have to. You can cheat sitting right next to the man that you're with. He won't even know. And it also allows you to soothe elsewhere. I don't feel better until my husband and I get it right. But if I'm on to social media in that way, I can feel better than immediately after a fight because some other dude is telling me how pretty I am or how, you know, whatever it is. And we don't do that because we weren't raised to do that. But I'm sure those that are raised with social media will do that regularly because everybody does what they need to do to feel better as soon as they can. And sometimes that's not having the fight. It's, it's just reaching out and touching somebody else. It's like the we're in a generation of instant gratification. Mm-hmm. We want everything right now. We want to feel better right now. Mm-hmm. We want it to be resolved right, right now. now. And unfortunately, it doesn't always work like that. Mm-hmm. So for you, what do you think the number one reason is why people get divorced or some of the main reasons that you've seen come across your courtroom? Well, it's interesting. In the 14 years that I was on the bench, social media was a small reason in the beginning. 
and it grew and grew and grew into proportionality that by the end of it, there wasn't, there was hardly a divorce that I saw that didn't have some, uh, that social media didn't have its tentacles into it somewhere. When you ask people, they usually say money because money is a huge stressor, but I don't, I think people give the easy answer when you ask them. I think these days it is a matter of faithfulness and expectations and the need to be happy all the time, the unwillingness to. And I told, I told this to Steve Harvey once, and he said I was wrong, but I understand. You got to be able to suffer a little and not walk off. You know, it, it, it's going to be unpleasant at times. It's, it, it's not going to be fun, and that's not an indication that it's over. It's simply an indication that y'all need to do some work. Now, it may be over, but you don't know that until you've worked to get past it and then realize that you can't. That's sound advice. I'm smiling because I actually went on the Steve Harvey show about three years ago. Oh, really? We did a dating segment. We did. We did. He gave me some great advice, and he's like, he's like, you know, you're a little intimidating. You get, you, you know, you, you... He's like, what are you, what are you doing when you're walking around? He's like, are you looking on your phone? Do you, do you smile at all? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm probably... I'm probably on my phone or I'm doing other things. He's like, you have to open yourself up and you have to be a little bit more open to different types of men who come into your life. You can't have this like type because at the time I had like a type. I'm like, no, he's got to be this and it's got to be that. And I had to start. It's funny because when he gave me that advice, I'm like, okay, I started to date different types of men, Mm -hmm. different ethnicities, different different types of guys that I typically wouldn't find myself. And then all of a sudden I found myself being attracted to all these different types of guys and it opened me up. So right. I'm laughing because he just gave me such great advice. Yeah, and, and that's so very true. And, and in my book, Dear Sonali, where I have the, when I talk to young girls about that, I say the very same thing. If you've been unhappy with your results so far, start dating against type because you're dating your type and clearly it's not satisfying you for whatever reason. Either there's not enough of them there or even what you're attracted to may not be ultimately what you need. So start dating guys that you don't, you know, say, oh, well, it's okay. Let me see what's over there. And, you know, I, I married a guy that had four teenage sons. What rational person would do that? You know, it's not, some, <laughs> it's not on your list of things, you know, and everything right. on my list except for one, he didn't meet. And that's when I knew the, the list was wrong. Mm, yeah, so it's really recognizing. I, I always tell people, you know, you have to get real with yourself and really figure it out. What is it that you want? Because if you're not clear with what you want in a relationship, how can you possibly be going out into the dating world and expecting to attract a healthy individual? And I started to get really, you know, just clear with myself, like, these are the characteristics that I want. And if they just so happen to not be over six feet tall, like I might have to bend right. with those types of things. And I start like I dated a guy, a funny guy, not my typical type. But let me tell you, humor is attractive. It is. Humor. And, and when you treat somebody really good, that kind of things are attractive. So I started to kind of look past different things. And I love that you brought up your book. I want to talk about uh, your book a little bit. It's called Dear Sonali. And when I was reading about this, What was really striking to me is that you're a mother of six boys, yet you wrote this advice to the quote-unquote daughters of the world to give advice as if they were your own. So why was this book so important to you? I had such an extraordinary relationship with my mother. 
And she was in my ear from beginning to end. And I know so much and things are so much easier. And I've been able to do so many things because my mother and I had such a deep, tight and abiding relationship. And I was hankering to have that kind of relationship with a daughter of my own. My husband had four sons when I married. I had two more boys. Apparently he cannot do girls. So I gave up. But I did still wanted to share some of the love and knowledge that my mother shared with me. So since I didn't have girls of my own, I adopted anybody who wanted to take a look in the book. I love that because my daughter, I have one, and she's 13. She's my one and only. We're very, very, very close. She's my she's my best friend. Right. And I know a lot of people are like, you shouldn't be best friends with your kid. I'm like, well, I am. I have, I'm a parent when I need to be, right. but she is my best friend. She, I love her dear, deeply. And the interesting thing is that, you know, I didn't have and I still don't have a good relationship with my mother. And so when I read about this and I was reading some of your book, I'm like, it just kind of brought me to tears a little bit because I'm like, man, I wish I had this. I wish I had this type of guidance and this type of um, female figure in my life. And although my mom wasn't a bad parent, there was just certain things that you know, that relationship, that closeness, the things that a mother, you know, should tell your daughter, I didn't get didn't those happen. things. So I didn't, it didn't happen. So I'm, I'm so moved by the fact that you felt called to write these things to the women of the world. So just take me, take me into your book a little bit. Maybe what is one or two things in the book that you feel like women need to know or that you want to pass to women that are listening? The first thing is that three quarters of the book ain't, don't mention dudes at all. You know what I mean? You, your life is about what you do, how you progress, how you succeed. Get Collecting a man along the way is clearly a meaningful and, and desire for everybody. But make sure your life is full and not focus so much on just having a guy and determine whether or not my life worked out okay. So that doesn't define you. I start in the book by asking everybody to look deep into their lesser selves, find out where they're weak, what they're not doing well. Don't get destroyed, Dwight. Don't get hurt by it. Just identify it so you can work on it. And I also say, I worry that had I been raised in this generation where you have all these IG sites and all these aphorisms about find your passion, find your dream, and you'll never work again. And, and in my book, it's like, look, hey, I never, I mean, I have a wonderful life, but I got here backwards. I never had a light bulb moment. My uh, path was never Mariah Carey clear. You know, it was like, you know, Mariah Carey's supposed to sing. And you don't have to, you, you don't have to ask, you don't have to concern yourself, but there was nothing I was really supposed to do, but I, I, I fashioned a life out of what I enjoyed and what I needed to do. And that if I can give you 10% happier today, wow, isn't that worth it? I can't, you know, everybody says, you know, do what I did and you'll have my life. That ain't true. I'm never going to be right. Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey has talents. Most of us do not share. So, right. I mean, but 10% better today? Yes. That's a little bit of progress. Yes. I love that. When I grew up, I, I grew up in Chicago, and it was, uh, it was a very traumatic, you know, upbringing. I had some really turbulent teenage years. And when I look back at that, I'm like, man, I don't know how I got here. Right. <laughs> it just like, I could sit here and be like, oh, do this and do that. I, I, I'm going to tell you, I don't know don't how know. I ended up because I think maybe some right choices, maybe a little bit of luck. 
Um, I had to get knocked over the head a couple times. Military, going into the Marine Corps, definitely helped that, you know, path a little bit more to the right as opposed to the left. But I think the biggest change was having my daughter. Oh, that'll change everything. That changed everything. everything for me. And when I had her, I'm like, I have to do something with my life. And I went through a really abusive situation and it was a, a highly domestic violence situation. And um, it, there was a moment where my daughter was able to verbalize to me, are you okay? And at that moment, I'm like, that's it. I'm, te- I, I'm I teaching to her go. to take it. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. go. And it was, it was that moment where I think I'm like, I got to, I got to, I got to be successful. And I think ever since then, it's been like this level of perfectionism because I'm afraid if I don't succeed at everything that there's going to be no one there for her to pick up the pieces so I have to do what I need to do and that's always been kind of like my driving success but don't can I say this I'm always dipping in where I don't belong but don't be worried about showing her the fails and the problems and the fall downs because that teaches her you know failure isn't fatal and Mm -hmm. and and it's important for kids to know that failure isn't fatal and you can fail, you can get back up, it doesn't devastate you, it doesn't, it doesn't define you, it teaches you, and you move on. I love that. I think it's important. It humanizes yeah, us, right? Yeah. Like, and it doesn't make, it, 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 it makes them ready for it. I, I remember when we were, my kids were young, and we were at a baseball game, and I came late and I asked what the score was, and everybody got all excited. There's no score, they're all winners here. And I'm like, no, there's a score. One team is winning and one team is losing, and the losing team shouldn't feel bad. The losing team should know you can lose, and you wake up, the sun comes up tomorrow, there, there's cereal in your bowl, and everything is fine. You, you, you miss an important teaching lesson if you take the, win and, the wins and loss out of early childhood. I really believe that. I agree. I think so, too, because we're in this like era of... You know, everybody's got to feel equal. Everybody's got to be fine right now. And you've got to know exactly who I am the minute I meet you. And if you don't agree with everything I say, you're whatever. You hate me and Mm -hmm. I can hate you back. And let me send you a couple of death threats just to make sure. Oh, yeah. And then we're in this cancel culture. I mean, it's it's really just like it's out of hand it's frightening. at this point. It's frightening. It is. It really is. Especially when, when you're in the public eye, too. It's like, oh, God, let me watch what I say. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. It's and crazy. And you can say something perfectly innocent. And people can read these. Uh, I saw someone use the word grandfather. It was grandfathered in, like the grandfather clause, like a clause where, mm-hmm. you know, takes reach from back. That was born out of racist America. And I was like, okay, <laughs> fine. But it's still defined what this other person used the word for, and you can't get mad at her because the origin of the word 400 years ago was used in a negative manner. I mean, it's just... It's right, crazy. And not everybody knows that. No. Yeah, it's so crazy. We're, we're in a whole different era now. And like when they um, got mad at I, Lizzo for using oh, the word spaz, she used... Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. She got in trouble because she used in one of her songs, spazzing out. And here, spaz means just go wild. But in, yeah. in, in Europe, apparently... Or England, it means uh, it's a it's a derogative term for somebody who's I don't know emotionally. I, I didn't even other, know it, that. It's a derogatory term, and they went for her, and she had to go wow, back and, and change her song. I didn't even know that. See, I, I think didn't know we're like she a culture. Didn't know we're, we're a we're a woke culture, and I think like on some levels that's great, but not everybody has that education of every little thing. Like we're not walking encyclopedias. <laughs> So I, and it's like, tell her, 
Oh, and she won't use it again. It's over. But you don't have to say, you've lost a fan. How dare you? You should have known. That's absurd. Has there ever been any time for you in your career, especially during television, where you're just like, I'm done. I'm going to quit. Has it ever affected your personal life to where you're just like, thought about maybe walking away? I don't think so. I I wanted to walk away from marriage boot camp a couple of times because that's that's a heavy lift. And working with reality stars is hard because they're managing they're they're doing everything duplicatively. They're 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 having your situation with you, but they're also de- determining how it looks to everybody else. And so you get a lot of pullback when you're trying to push back when you're trying to get into a meaningful conversation with them because a lot of what I say to people is you got to acknowledge where you're wrong and where you're weak or else you won't improve. And the last thing reality stars want to do is say, I, I'm, I'm jacked up, I'm wrong, and I don't want to do it. So it, it became Herculean at one point, but since Ish took over with me, it's been much better. Do you feel like from doing reality TV or even from just doing your time on divorce court, Do you feel like it helped you or even hurt you within your own marriage? Because I could imagine seeing so much divorce come in front of you. There had to have been some lessons for you to take along the way, even maybe with what you see in your own personal life. Oh, it saved my marriage. And I'll tell you exactly what happened was it was one of those periods where my husband and I weren't getting along. And it was for like five or six years. I mean, we was just nasty over here. And... I saw this woman on, I saw a couple of women in one, uh, in one session, you know, one week of divorce court, because I used to go and do it a week at a time. And all of those women were giving their men the false okay. In other words, they kept saying, okay, 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 to everything he said and everything he did. And then at the end of the day, they were resentful and angry and it was over. And I realized that I had given my husband false okays for years, so I never really expressed my opinion. And I was, I was resentful, and I was angry. And he was mad because the strong woman that he married was no longer there. And we didn't realize what the problem was until I saw those women. And I thought, man, I'm telling that man, okay, I'm on board with stuff I'm not okay and on board for, and I'm resentful, and he can see it, and I'm angry. And um, I came home, I talked to my mom about it, and she said, okay, we're gonna change what you do. Here we go. And I said, well, how do I talk to Eric? And he says, you don't. He says, you teach him. You teach him with how you change. And if you change, and you stay solid, and you stay cool, but you remain on this alternate track, He'll have no option but to follow. Your mom obviously is such a, a big impact in your life. She's given you all this like amazing and sound advice. I, I just I'm listening to it and I've I've hear I've heard you talk about your mom in the most amazing ways and it's just so beautiful to hear and she obviously has kind of even impacted and molded you completely you are today. I see completely. I don't even know her and right. I'm like I feel like I, I'm talking to your mom in oh, a way. I don't say much without her coming through. She, 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 you know, we were so, we were like you and your daughter. We were like, mom said, hey, let's not go to, don't go to school today. Let's go, let's go have lunch. 
mm-hmm. you know, and we would talk and we would talk about men and we would talk about dreams. We would talk about needs. We would talk about fears. There was nothing she was unwilling to say to me. It was, it was fascinating. It was wonderful. Just, I love that. I hit the, I hit the maternal lottery. Oh, that's beautiful. That's, that's really how I try to be with my daughter. I'm, she knows everything about me. And sometimes I, of course there are some things like, I'm not going to tell her everything. They're not age appropriate yet. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But she, she's pretty smart. And so she catches on real quick. Mm -hmm. So she'll ask me questions and there's nothing that I've never not told her. You know, especially if she asks me, I've always told her the truth. Right. Like we talked about sex very early right. on. We've, we, I, I check in with her. How are you feeling? Do you like anybody? How are you feeling about your sexual identity? Because she's kind of like teeter tottering mm-hmm. with that. And we've tried to always keep these open conversations. So when I hear you talk about your mom, it just reminds me of, of me and my daughter. And that's such a beautiful it's a feeling. Wonderful and I can thing. tell that she's, she's had such a big impact on you. I want to switch gears a little bit because one thing that um, when I was mentioning earlier, I was in a domestic violence situation and I was reading a little bit about your story and you're a huge advocate for domestic violence. And in 2002, you were awarded the Humanitarian of the Year Award from the Cleveland Domestic Violence Center and have done many other things as well with that and made several efforts with different organizations to help. Why is this such an important area for you to work with? Um... It's interesting because, number one, I was raised in a chaotic household. My my father was um, bipolar and unmedicated, and there was a lot of chaos mm-hmm. in there. Now, he never hit her or anything, but he used to chase her. And mom's thing was, if you ever connect, I'm out. He says, now, now I'll run, and, said, and, and, and that'll count. You, you, you'll be fine. He said, but you, if you ever connect, I'm gone. And... It's not something I would recommend. She was an extraordinary woman. He was an extraordinary, wonderful man. He just happened to be mentally ill. But when I went on to the bench, I saw a whole different kind of household chaos where the guy was felt uh, he had that right to reach out and touch folk. And I saw, I know how difficult it is to be in a house like that. I know how difficult it is to leave. And I also saw it so often, and it, it was just an epidemic that no one sees. And I was in a municipal court where that's where all the domestic violence showed up. I would get four or five hundred, town of 50,000, four or five hundred domestic violence cases a year. And I was like, it's like you do it in the darkness of the home so it never comes to light unless you go to the law, and then it's, quite, it's too little too late. And I felt that to do something about it, I had to have not the robe on, but an ability to keep people out of abusive relationships. And the uh, organization that I belong to now, uh, Bloom 365, that's what we are seeking to do, teaching high schoolers and middle schoolers what's a healthy relationship, what are the warning signs, and not only to potential victims, but also to potential perpetrators. What should I be doing? How do I handle my jealousy? What do I do when I'm insecure and fearful? All of those things. And also breaking the cycle. We make them talk about what happens at home when things don't go right. And if pops gets up and hits mom, even though you don't like it, when you have a wife later on, you, you default to what you know. And that's, and that's the cycle. So I decided that it's, you know, it's far better to prevent than it is to, to try to provide a cure. 
And so that's what I decided to do. I think that's a good route to go. Uh, generational trauma is real. Hurt people hurt people, especially if that's all they know. Right. That's not always the case. You know, I'm I'm a solid proof of that. Right. It didn't right. continue on. You can make a decision not to repeat. Yeah, that's right. It took a lot of self-awareness, mm-hmm. though, a lot of self-insight that not everybody is ready to face. At and all. I think that, yeah, sometimes we go through a lot of a traumatic shit and we don't always want to deal with Mm-mm. it because it hurts. It's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's made national news yet, but there's a a case right now in the Marine Corps. That's the branch that I was in. Mm -hmm. And there's a young lady who was recently killed by domestic violence. The interesting thing about this case is that she went to his command. She went to law enforcement. She made a public video that went, you know, she was in a, she had a lot of followers Mm -hmm. in a very public situation and nobody listened to this girl. Um, mainly because she had an OnlyFans, she was um, in the public eye a lot, so they didn't take her seriously, or they just didn't feel like she was worth worthy of being helped. I hate to say it like that, but I feel like that's that was kind of like the case because had she had been a young Caucasian woman, mm-hmm. I think that it would have been a different outcome. Yeah, often if you are not pristine as a woman. You know how long, how many years it took to get the what was she wearing question out of court for a rape charge? You know, it was an effort to get people to stop asking that question is how did you incite the damage done to you? And, and I think that women are often, unless you are pristine and perfect, well, what were you doing out at that hour, you know, to get snatched like that? Especially if you have any sexuality about you. Yeah, I worked in the prison system, like I told you, and the reason why I exited is because I had an inmate try to assault me. Um, Luckily, other inmates saved my life. And um, when he did this, it's funny because I told the other guards and my leadership that this particular inmate needed to be watched because I had a bad feeling. He wasn't on my caseload. He had no reason to be talking to me. Right. And when this incident happened, it was very premeditated. And after the investigation happened, one of the questions that they asked me, well, look at the way that you dress. And I'm just like, wait, I'm sorry. I dress professionally, number one. And I I don't even wear perfume or makeup. Like, I can't change my bone structure. Right, right. I'm a young female in a male penitentiary. And you could have looked like anything and he'd have done it. I mean, you happen to be beautiful, but that's not your fault. Yeah, like, well, thank you. But I was like, exactly. Like any anybody with a vagina, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, in this place right. is pretty much going to get attention. Right. So, But I, I just couldn't believe the words that I was hearing. So the reason why I left the prison system wasn't because of the incident. It was because of the, uh, the lack of support right. that I had after that incident. So I therefore could not trust the people that I worked with to support me if a future incident happened. And therefore I felt my safety was compromised and couldn't. So I couldn't imagine being a female in the law system, having to deal with something and feeling unsupported. So thank you for what you do. And even just preventing it and starting from, you know, before it happens, like what can we do beforehand? Because I feel like that's something that needs to be addressed So for someone listening right now who's maybe in that situation, in a domestic violence situation, what advice do you have? The first thing I would do is tell somebody that you trust and have some kind of system and some you know, that you can go to that where you they know that you have a problem. Find out where your domestic violence agencies are and where their safe house is and have that friend do all that and have that available for you because often we worry about a woman's search history. 
because if you're you're looking to leave, that's when they get extraordinarily abusive. That's when they be that's when they turn lethal. So you don't want your browser history full of how do I get out? So you have somebody to help you with that, an escape plan, puts clothes over her house, some money, some this and that, and just have a way out because you never know when the day's gonna show that you gotta go. And you never know when the opportunity to go is gonna come. So have all that stuff ready. And sometimes you're just not ready to go. It takes a lot because everybody, why don't you just leave? Leave my life, leave my home, leave my economic security, leave my whole life plan and leave the kindnesses that he does show me. It's not all abuse. People don't understand that. They apologize. They get loving. And then they say, all you got to do is buy Hunts and not Heinz ketchup. You know, and, and it's like, okay, next time I'll buy Hunts and not Heinz, then it's the mustard. But you don't, you know, it takes time to have all of that stacked up against you and and uh, just stay in touch with someone, some one or two somebodies that will support you if you have to make that move. So having a safety plan mm-hmm. sounds just really critical. imperative. Critical. Very critical. Critical. And have other people know that you're in trouble. You know, a lot of people, mm-hmm. I had no idea. I had no idea. I had no idea. So if somebody don't hear from you for a little, hey, yo, yo, what you doing? What, what's going on over there? I had a friend who was in a burgeoning domestic violence situation. And I had another girlfriend who was just pushy. And when the third time she called and couldn't get a hold of her, she took her husband, went over to the house. I want to talk to her. And I want to talk to her right now. You know, and it took a year, but she got her out. I love that. And you're right. It, it's so difficult sometimes because when somebody's in that cycle, it's very difficult to leave a situation that you're comfortable with, that you're used to, that maybe you know nothing else. Maybe it's financial security, no other family support, because oftentimes abusers will isolate you from family and friends. That, that is the strongest tool that they have is to isolate you. And then once they isolate you, now that you're the only, they're the only voice in your ear, they tell you you ain't nothing. So you think you can't go because you think you, I'm dumb, I'm not pretty, I'm never going to make it, ain't nobody else going to want you. You can't hit on somebody until you've told them often enough you ain't nothing. And then it's mm. hard to leave when you think you ain't nothing. And that's what people don't understand. There was one case that you did that I watched this video, and I'm not going to lie, I was crying so hard. In one of the episodes, you told a young lady, you know, why did you stay? And she said, I didn't want to start over. And, and you said, I can have a disease for five years, but I still want to get, get rid cured. of it. <laughs> I still want to get cured. That was Ms. Ellis. I'll never forget her. Oh, man. And I was in tears. And there was another one in particular, too, that really stood out that you said you can tell a woman every other Tuesday that she's ugly. And on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, she'll still think about those things until the next time that you do it. Knowing that next Tuesday inevitably will come. It's so true. That that hit me. That one hit me so hard because I think that people don't realize the power of their words and, you know, that it can really affect us as we go along. Especially from the one person that's supposed to love mm-hmm. you the most and know you the best. Right. Tells you you ain't nothing. Oh. Do you think that somebody who 
is in a relationship with a habitual cheater or somebody who's constantly criticizing them, do you think that that other person is capable of changing? Because I feel like I feel like if someone's doing that, they're not going to change. I don't see it going nowhere. It's extraordinarily difficult to get them to change. Extraordinarily difficult. And usually most people aren't, one, capable to do all of those things that require them to change. And also, that person has to be at their, at their, their core good. And if they're not... Mm-hmm they have no impetus to change because they don't care how they treat you. It's hard to get that to change. It usually doesn't. Yeah, especially if like you're dealing with like a narcissist or somebody who is just, you know, they're very manipulative themselves. They don't really have that self-awareness or that self-insight. And I think, I think sometimes they just don't care. No, they don't care. Mm-mm. They're getting along. They're doing fine. They're their own main characters yeah, in their stories. they're happy and, and they're going or they're tooling mm-hmm. right along. That's right. And so I always tell people, and just even from my, I'm, Listen, this was my personal experience, too. I had to get to the point where I had to make a hard decision to be okay with being hurt for a little while, being upset and being broken and and being okay with being like that temporarily in order to have long-term gain of happiness. And that's what most people can't do. They, I mean, that's, that's why booze is so wonderful, folks, and all that kind of stuff. You know, that people can't just sit in their distress you know they want they they want to, to assuage it. They want to they want to solve it. They want to feel better immediately, and often that is counterproductive. There was another thing that you said that I want you to touch on. You said never do wife duties at girlfriend prices. Please let's talk about this because I really need you to educate the, the women oh, listening. Oh, listen, there. So I I will I, if I had a dime for every time some dude came in there and said she's got to show me she's wife material. You know, she's got to prove it. I said, okay, she proved she can cook and clean. Have you been showing her husband material? Have you paid her bills this week? Oh, no, she's got to prove she's wife material by acting like a wife. Then you move her in, and then then you install her as the best appliance you got. She does all the things that a wife does, but she ain't got the ring, and you keep telling her, well, you got to prove it, you got to prove it, you got to prove it. And then after a couple of years, you've invested so much and so much time and so much money, probably have a kid or two, you're completely installed and he ain't got to make a move. So just don't do it at all in the beginning. Just don't do it. I agree. I, you know, that's, that's one thing I like about Steve Harvey is he's a little bit more old school, but I agree with the old school. I like, I like when a man courts me and I mm-hmm. think that men... I think men should work a little bit. And I hear this, well, you know, men deserve free meals too, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, listen, homie, like at the end of the day, like as a man, men are natural hunters. So I'm not saying that I won't match your effort, but I think at least up to some degree, men need to make a little bit of effort. And as women, I think we need to fall back a, a little bit and not give everything, not give us, not give them our entire hearts right away. Because as the, the reality is, is you don't know that person. It takes time it really to does. really get it to really know does. somebody. And it's interesting though, you know, when, when people get married, men live on an average three years longer once they get married. Women don't live any longer, but men do. And they did an 80-year longitudinal study, and being married and having a good marriage helps you financially in, in all manner of ways. The man in, in the relationship, because we do so much ancillary giving that they don't even know about. 
that you take care of, even if you're, you're, you're a professional person, you make sure everybody goes to the doctor, you make sure the pills are taken, you make sure the meals are made, and, and, and what are you doing, and what's going on, all of that. And we make them much happier, make them live longer, and they make more money, even if we're not making more money. But mm. that's not something that people typically acknowledge. We're nurturing. It's like mm-hmm. the caregiver role. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And like when I'm not in the house, there, there was a death in the family and I was out of town. I had one son in one room, one son in another room, and my husband in another room all calling me because I deal with emotions. And they were all distraught and didn't know how to manage it. I managed the emotions in the house. So I had to, from another state, talk to everybody to get them together because left alone in the house, they couldn't manage it. That's difficult too. And I I think that as healers, as people who give advice and who are constantly helping others, we kind of naturally get people to gravitate towards us, which sometimes I have to remember to have boundaries too and take care of myself because... Because it's a lot of energy at times, so I, I, I can relate. Um, so for you, if you were to think about, I know it's a long history that you had on divorce court and even before that with your history as a judge, is there one case in particular that stands out to you that you remember maybe we'll never forget? On divorce court, it was the bride who slept with the best man as opposed to the groom on the wedding night because the groom got drunk and started playing bid whisk or something, and she was like, well... You know, if you're not going to do your job, I'll get somebody else. So that that one I remember distinctly. Ooh. And oh my. on the Sips bench, my coffee. <laughs> on the bench, hmm, there were there were so many. I mean, I learned so many lessons from everybody. But oh, the case of uh, it was a mother. She had a 13 year old and a 14 year old, and I think she beat up the 14 year old because she found out that she got pregnant by the same person that got the 13-year-old pregnant. And my response, and she was yelling and screaming in the courtroom about what her daughter did. And I'm like, yo, lady, this is on you. You got two pregnant daughters? And I said, where's the father? He said, we're trying to find out his last name now. And I said, that's a failure on your part. I don't know what you mad at her for. She's 13. I, I couldn't get over it. She had, a, she had a boyfriend there that was not helpful, and she just wasn't, you know, if all of your kids are jacked up, you got to look at what you did. Ooh, preach for that. I, it reminds me of when I was 13. I was a very turbulent 13-year-old, <laughs> and I had, I had, you know, I had an incident that happened to me, and my mom... I just remember her like blaming me for it, you know, well, look at all the guys you've slept with. Look at, look at this. And I, and I remember just like feeling numb and not really feeling anything. And so now as an adult, I'm 36 and I notice now how I am with my mom. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm always numb around her. I don't express my emotions. I can't be, I don't allow myself to be happy, angry. I turn off and I, I, now I know I associate with that because I was blamed so much of what I did as a child, you know, and I was always yelled at for things that I didn't understand mm-hmm. because of her traumas. And, you know, what's interesting is like, I know that those were her traumas, but as a child, you don't know that. And people forget like teenagers, like they're children, mm-hmm. they're kids. Like, you know, if you're, you have to ask yourself, what are you doing as a parent? If 
they're going out and doing X, Y, and Z. And I know that not every situation is the same, but at the same time, like how you react and what you say to your kids matters. Absolutely. It matters. Absolutely. Dialogue in your head about everything you do based upon how your parents responded to it. So, you know, you set up a bad dialogue for that. You're destined for trouble. That's right. So we have a tradition on the show when we close out to, you know, because I I like to get just feedback from everybody that comes on on what their biggest advice to their younger selves would be. And you come with so much history and so much knowledge and just you're just you're amazing at what you do. So I would love to know if you could go back and give yourself any piece of advice to your younger self. What would you say? Quit worrying about it. Mm. because 99% of the things that you worry about do not come to pass. And so you've just wasted all of your time. You've wasted all the joy and, you know, stop and enjoy the moment and don't worry about the next one because you're going to fool around and lose this one. That is definitely what I tell myself. Ooh, being present. Be being present. Hard. And I, I wasn't, pre- I was never present anywhere until I turned 61. I just <laughs> wasn't. I was never in the same room with myself. Oh, wow. So now I've just, you know, for the last two years, I'm kind of like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying my day. And I didn't know how to do that. I just want to throw out there, you do not look 61. <laughs> I'm 60. I'm just... <laughs> I'll be 63 in October. So. You, you're, you're doing great because you do, you look fabulous. I, I just hope that I have that same skincare routine. <laughs> right, when, right. Drink a lot of water. <laughs> Drink a lot of water. <laughs> I know. I, I got to get rid of the coffee. Um Judge Lynn, I cannot thank you enough for your time and your energy and your nuggets of wisdom. I'm going to probably repeat this episode about four times to listen to myself because it was very therapeutic. Well, th- <laughs> so thank, thank you so you. much. It was delightful. It really was. I enjoyed our conversation a great deal. Um, so I want everybody to kind of get an idea of what you're doing now, where they can find you. I know we did talk a little bit about your books, which mm-hmm. I'll link, but I think you have more than more than two out there. So tell everybody where they can find you and a little bit about what you're doing right now. Well, right now, um, my newest show, Commit or Quit, uh, that's on, you can get them on a couple of stringers, Sling and All Black TV. I have my uh, two books out, Dear Sonali and uh, My Mother's Rules. And My Mother's Rules I wrote in 2007 about my mother because... She had all the best rules. And uh, I'm working on something else, a scripted series that I believe will air in 2023. So Exciting. we'll see. We'll That's see. exciting. Yeah. Well, I, I hope to see that. And I want everybody to go grab your copies because as you can hear, I mean, the, the advice that comes out of you know, just not only from you, but from your mother and just from your knowledge base is just so amazing. I know it's going to help so many people. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.